Today on the podcast, we have my new friend, uh, Dr. James Anderson, and Dr. Anderson is a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, where he specializes in philosophical theology, religious epistemology, and Christian apologetics. He studied at the University of Edinburgh and explored the paradoxical nature of certain Christian doctrines and the implications for the rationality of Christian faith. His research and writing is also focused on the presuppositionalism of Cornelius Van Til, particularly his advocacy of the transcendental argument. Now, Dr. Anderson, that's that's a that's a weighty uh, bio, and uh, there'll be a lot of people at my church that probably don't know what presuppositionalism or sorry presuppositional. <laughs> I can't even say it. Presuppositional apologetics is. Um, or even what epistemology is, or some of that stuff. So maybe if we just bring the cookies down lower on the bottom shelf a little bit, and tell us a little bit about who you are in more layman's terms, and um, how all those big words connect to who you are, and what you're passionate about in life. Okay, well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on, Zach. Really appreciate being uh, being on here and having a chance to chat with you a bit. So yeah, so so my bio, yeah, it does sound uh, kind of impressive with those big <laughs> words in it. But of course, that's completely deliberate. I put the words in there precisely to make it sound more impressive. Than right, it really of course, is. of course. <laughs> but um, I mean, the, the, the long story short is that uh, all of what you just described there goes back to my uh, initial interest and passion for Christian apologetics. So I'm obviously a Christian believer. I was uh, raised in a Christian home, uh, made a personal commitment to Christ as a teenager, but didn't really explore the intellectual dimensions of my faith at that time because there were no real challenges, you know, no no proddings to to think more deeply about the, the rational foundations of my faith. And it really wasn't until I went to university and actually into uh, postgraduate studies in, as it was, uh, engineering at that time, that I came face to face with um, particularly sophisticated uh, forms of unbelief. So I was working in a highly academic environment with with people who who weren't Christians, uh, typically uh, atheists or at least agnostics, and had a lot of skeptical questions about uh, my my Christian beliefs and. I wanted to be able to answer those. Uh, I felt I had a, an obligation to give good answers and to, to take these objections seriously. And that's what really got me into um, apologetics, which is about giving the reason for the hope that we have, making a, making a reasoned defense of the Christian faith. And so I started reading a lot of works on apologetics, and uh, that got me into theology. Uh, I, I realize that if you're going to defend the faith well, you have to know what is this faith that you're defending. You need right. to understand the doctrines of the faith. So I started reading a lot of theology, 
And then I started reading a lot of philosophy as well, because I discovered that uh, many of these objections to the Christian faith uh, come, come from sort of a philosophical standpoint, and there's a lot of uh, phil philosophical assumptions packed into them. And I wanted to be well equipped to, to engage unbelief with a, from a philosophically competent perspective. And, um, and things just sort of uh, got out of control. Uh, and I ended up, <laughs> I ended up um, changing disciplines. I mean, this didn't happen overnight. It happened over a number of years. But sure. moving from engineering and um, computer interface research, as I was uh, involved in, uh, into studying philosophical theology and apologetics. And, um, and that's, that's really uh, what I do now. I, I, I teach at a seminary. I teach Christian philosophy, uh, some theology, some apologetics. And uh, one of my uh, most significant influences in that area, I mean, there are many, many great thinkers who have influenced me, but one in particular is a guy called Cornelius Van Til, who maybe some of your, your listeners will have heard of, who pioneered a particular approach to apologetics called presuppositionalism, or at least that's the label that's been attached to it. Right. And the basic idea of presuppositionalism is that everyone has presuppositions, things that they take for granted, starting points for reasoning. Another way to put it is everyone has a worldview. That right. is, no one comes to any issue from a, a neutral perspective without any assumptions, without any presuppositions. Everyone comes with a worldview and they interpret the world through the lens of that worldview. And so in apologetics, we want to focus on people's worldviews. We want to ask, uh, what kind of a worldview does this person have that I'm talking to? Um, I have a Christian worldview. I'm, I'm not neutral. I, I come with this package of assumptions about uh, the nature of the universe, about who I am, about what my sources of authority are, and unbelievers do as well. And so the large part of the task of apologetics is contrasting the Christian worldview with various forms of non-Christian worldview and asking which makes sense of the world, which of these worldviews actually corresponds to reality and makes sense of all the things that we take for granted about the world. And uh, so presuppositionalism, and here's the sort of payoff, presuppositionalism argues that uh, even non-Christians are depending on a Christian worldview in order to make sense of the world. That is, they're borrowing right. uh, assumptions, they're borrowing right. presuppositions from a Christian worldview to make sense of things like uh, morality. Reason, so, for example, science. for example, like the presupposition that human beings have value, like where does that come from? Like that's right. if, if we're a, if we're a cosmic accident and the product of evolutionary time and chance to say thus we should love one another is a jump too quick and too far, right? Yeah, that's right. So that's a that's a great example of something that most people take for granted that that human beings are valuable and are more valuable than squirrels and uh, opossums and uh, coconuts and rocks, you know, even though uh, according to some worldviews, all of these things are just matter in motion, just, just the, the, set, the products of uh, time, chance and evolutionary processes. But we do believe that there's something special about human beings and that we have a value and a moral worth and uh, you know our entire civilization is really built on some of these assumptions. But which worldview can account for them? Which right. worldview can make sense of them? And we want to argue that ultimately it's a it's a Christian worldview that can account for the inherent value and dignity that human beings have. Yeah. So that's a great um, 
just a easy example that lots of people can understand about presuppositions that people have and how do we explain the values that we have. See, I think one of the problems is most of us aren't that self-reflective about the values that we have. They just are, right? And um, whether it's Christians sometimes, uh, and, and part of my job as an elder and a pastor is to help connect the things that people take for granted as the, the givens of, of human nature, or whatever, like, let's see where the Bible explains that or how we can connect all of this to scripture. But um, in your experience, how do you help your unbelieving friends or in the conversations that you have with those that don't know the Lord to be even willing to start to ask some of those questions? Because in my experience, it's hard to just dive in and go, well, let me, let me confront some of your presuppositions. You know what I mean? Like that's not a easy starting place. Um, give us some help in, in how some of these conversations go in your experience with, with unbelieving friends. Yeah. So I think one of the things about, about presuppositionalism as an, as an approach to apologetics, what I've just described is the beauty of it is that you can, you can pretty much start anywhere. You can start with anything that is of interest or um, of importance to an unbeliever. And there are some, uh, some non-Christians who are very concerned with moral matters, with um, matters of either personal morality or what we might call social justice. Um, and so that, that can be a good starting point for discussion. We can say, you know, look, we, we agree that this thing that we heard on the news or, or some, some item uh, is uh, is a grave injustice. We can we can definitely agree that there's an injustice there that needs to be rectified. But have you ever thought about why that's an injustice in the first place? What what is justice? Where do we get our standards of justice from? If we're going to say that this is just and this is unjust, is that just a matter of social convention? Is it a matter of personal preference? Is it a matter of the government just comes up with these laws and if the government says something's just, then it is just? I think it's fairly easy to show that that's, that's not gonna work out well when, it, when the government uh, gets to decide what's ultimately just or unjust, that's a recipe for, for tyranny. Um, and so you start asking these questions, helping people to see that they're taking certain things for granted, that there is a justice, uh, if you will, a transcendent justice, a justice that stands over all human beings, but what kind of a worldview can actually account for that transcendent justice, for right. why there is an ultimate right or wrong. So that's one example. But if someone's interested in, in science, if they're interested in, in the arts, um, if they're interested in matters of, of, of human rights or humanitarian causes, all of these serve as great starting points for asking this is a good thing. We, we agree on this. This is a valuable thing. I can affirm your interest and, and uh, concern for this thing. But I, I don't think that your way of looking at the world and your assumptions about who we are, and where we came from, and what's the nature of reality, I don't think they, they actually fit with those concerns. I think they actually undermine it. So let's ask some, some deeper questions here about what worldviews could make sense of these things. Yeah. And I think I, I, I fear even for myself, um, who, you know, I went to seminary and I studied religion and philosophy and in college, 
even for myself, sometimes it's challenging to think in philosophical categories. And I think about people in my church that can listen to a conversation like this and might go, okay, that kind of makes sense. But I'm not sure I have like the, the structures in my brain to even know how to engage in a conversation like that. And it's not that people are smarter or lack of intelligence or anything like that. It's just thinking in philosophical terms and asking presuppositional questions or asking worldview questions isn't our default setting. You know, the default setting is maybe something more superficial or just discussing, you know, the weather and the Packers. And, and I mean, that's not true. A lot of us have conversations that are way more profound than that. But what I'm getting at is just how do you, Dr. Anderson, help people, just lay people that, that maybe aren't used to thinking in philosophical or um, uh, philosophical, theological ideas, you know, where do you even start? Like, I'm just thinking of like backing the train up a few steps, like um, just to start wanting to feel comfortable engaging in that kind of a conversation. Have you, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I really appreciate the, the concern that you're raising there. And, and the, the reality is that, that all of us are wired in different ways. So, mm-hmm. so I, I love philosophy. I love asking these ultimate questions and thinking about these things. And, and, uh, and that's fine. The Lord has called me to a particular area of ministry where I can, I can put that to good work, I trust. But not everybody is, is like that. Not everyone is wired that way. And not everyone is called to engage at that level or with those kind of categories. And the more important thing, I think, at the end of the day, is that Christians uh, know how to simply explain the gospel, simply need to explain the Christian message of salvation and live it out in a consistent way. Now, whether they they can make an apologetic argument for, for God or for the Bible, that's great if they can do that. And, and I think in a local church context, there's ways of, of training people to, to think better and to speak better about these things. But I'm, I'm more concerned, are they able to simply explain the basics of Amen. the Christian faith to an unbeliever in a, way, in a way they can understand without using all the Christian jargon, you know, justification, sanctification, substitutionary atonement? Right. Can, they, can they talk about those things uh, in an in an ordinary way that's understandable, and then can they live the kind of lives that reflect the gospel, the grace of God, the transforming grace of God, and the love of Christ? Yeah. So, so that's that's where I would start. You know, if you had to choose between what do you want your to equip your people to do, is definitely that first thing. But I do think in our in our culture today, which is of course increasingly secular, increasingly post Christian. Uh, apologetics is more important than ever. And I, I think it's incumbent on Christian leaders, pastors, elders in churches to to give their congregations just some basic uh, apologetics training. And usually the way I approach this is is through the category of worldview. That is, uh, I will I will talk about uh, what is a worldview? Uh, what kind of worldviews do people have? What is the Christian worldview? Let's start there. Let's let's not even talk about Islam or or uh, naturalism or postmodernism. Let's talk about the Christian worldview. What does it mean to say that we have a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview? And let's think about 
the the elements of a Christian worldview and how they fit together and how they make sense of our experiences of the world, how the Christian worldview itself makes sense. Uh, and then talk about uh, what are some alternative worldviews? What are some competing worldviews? How do they differ from the Christian worldview? And how do those differences actually lead to all kinds of problems for that worldview? Because they, they fall short of the truth of, of what God has revealed. So I think you can, you can teach about worldviews without using highfalutin philosophical language. Just talk about what does the Bible say about God? What does it say about the universe in general terms? What does it say about human beings, where we came from, what kind of beings we are, what are God's purposes for us? How do we know things through what God has revealed? These are basic um, worldview categories that I think anyone can really grasp and, and appreciate. Yeah. And you wrote a book that deals with these issues, right? So let's, yeah, let's chat about your book. Um, the title is, let me get it here. What's your worldview, an interactive approach to life's big questions? And so is your target audience here just the, the normal lay person uh, at, a, at a local church? No, not at all. In fact, it okay. was, <laughs> well, I, I, I hope it's uh, uh, interesting and, and helpful and encouraging for, for Christian laypersons. But um, actually, my, my primary audience with this book is unbelievers, is non, non-Christians. Uh, I designed it to be a, a tool and a resource for starting fruitful conversations about worldviews, for introducing people to the idea of a worldview, to what their worldview is, and what are some of the issues with their worldview, some of the problems with their worldview that they maybe haven't encountered before. Um, you know, I, I've been teaching material on, on worldviews and using worldviews and apologetics for, for years, and the, the genesis of the book was a, a course that I I still teach on applied apologetics here at uh, a Reformed Theological Seminary, where we we go through a number of non-Christian worldviews and consider, you know, how do they conceive of of God and the universe and human beings? And one of the questions that came up as I was designing that course is how how do you divide up the field of worldviews? You know, how do you categorize worldviews? Is there some scheme for categorizing worldviews? It seemed to me that you can actually categorize worldviews based on some fundamental questions like, is there a God? So there are worldviews that recognize that there is a God and there are worldviews that deny that there's a God. Uh, is, uh, is this God a personal God or not? And you can go on and ask various questions and actually develop a sort of a, a, a tree structure. If, if you know anything about sort of logic or, or computer programming often, um, a field of options can be divided into, into a tree structure where you, you, you answer a question and you go down one branch or you go down another branch. And as I was thinking more about uh, categorizing worldviews in this way by asking basic questions, my, my mind cast back to uh, some books, kind of book that I enjoyed as a child growing up, and maybe you're familiar with them as well, but uh, we had these uh, Choose Your Own Adventure uh, books that were... Uh, instead of being just a story that you read, you started in chapter one and you read through and it was just one story, the Choose Your Own Adventure books were interactive. 
So uh, you would read a few pages and then you would get the choice. Do you do, you do this or do you do that? Do you, do you go down the, the path or do you open the door? Um, right. Do those books so, still exist? Do they know? do. Do they? They do. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't think they're quite as popular today in, in this age of, you know, iPhones and because, right. you know, everything's interactive now. Um, That's but true. yeah, you can still get, in fact, the uh, the choose your own adventure that's uh, that's a trademark. There's there's a company okay. that owns that, and they and they still publish these books. Yeah, so, so we're, idea, we're probably yeah. about the same age. I'm 43. I'm a little older than that. Okay, um, <laughs> not much. Yeah, and so for those that don't even understand the choose your own adventure thing, like that was big when we were kids. Right, and I would check those out at that library. But yeah, it's it's um it's really cool how you've laid the book out and. Um, the, to choose your own path through the book and where you end up is going to be variant based on the choices you make. Um, could you give an example of how that works in your actual book? Yeah, sure. So I, the way I uh, arranged the book is I actually designed it with a, with a diagram thinking about what, what, what are all the worldviews that someone could have and then how could we arrange them in a way where we can ask basic questions and follow a path through the book to discover what worldview you have. And the first questions that I ask are, are really foundational. You, you might think that the first question to ask is, do you believe in God? Right. Because that seems pretty important, right? Right. You know, that's, that's in a sense, that's going to be the most important aspect of your worldview, whether you believe in God or, or not. Um, but it, it occurred to me that there are some preliminary questions that you need to ask about things like uh, like truth, knowledge, and, and goodness. So the first real substantive question in the book is, is do you believe that there's objective truth? Because if you don't believe there's objective truth, then talking about the existence of God or the person of Jesus Christ or any of these other questions is kind of irrelevant because, uh, you know, maybe it's true for you, but it's not true for, for me. You so know, let, let, person, let me stop you there because yeah. I, I fear that somebody at our, you know, that's listening might not even know what we mean by object, objective truth. Can you explain yeah. that, Dr. Anderson? So objective truth would be something that is true for everyone, everywhere, no matter what they actually believe. So objective would be the opposite of subjective. So subjective is something that depends on me or it depends on my personal thoughts or experiences. So a statement like, um, you know, uh, chocolate, chocolate ice cream is delicious. Okay. We could say that's, that's subjective. Mm -hmm. to a degree. It's because it's a matter of taste. Not everyone likes chocolate ice cream. But um, the, the statement um, that uh, ice is frozen water, that's not my personal preference. That's not subjective. Uh, that's an objective fact, in this case, a scientific fact, a fact about nature that, that ice is the solid frozen form of water. And so there's, there's a difference between those sort of claims that we make that are subjective uh, or, or relative to our own perspective, and those that are objective, that, that they are what they are, no matter what you happen to think about it. Yeah. I sometimes use the illustration of the, um, of the TV show X-Files, which many people don't know about now, but again, people of our age will be familiar with the, right. the X-Files. And you, you had the, the lead character who has a, a poster on his wall behind his desk that says, the truth is out there, the truth is out there. That's actually a statement of objective truth, that the, the truth, is, truth isn't in here, in my head or in my heart. It's not a personal, subjective thing. There are 
objective facts mm -hmm. about reality. Right. And so that's really what I'm getting at with that first question. Is truth, or it, is there at least some objective truth? Right. There are, are there some truths that are, are simply true, period? Not, not true for me, true for you, or true for some group, but true, full stop. True here, true here. Right. So everyone can understand truth. like um, rape is objectively wrong. Um, like it doesn't matter how I feel about it, whether or my opinion, it just is. Or another way to think about it might be um, if I didn't exist, it would still be wrong. Like if a rape happened right. and I, you know, and I wasn't around to comment on that was good or bad, everybody can understand that that's wrong whether you think it is or not um so right. yeah that, that would be an example of an objective moral truth the right. truth about what is right that is that is objective it's not as a well rape is right for some people but not right for other people or it's right, right for people in this culture but not right for another culture no it's just wrong the end right wrong for everyone everywhere all the time yeah regardless of my opinion so you start with that answer and so someone reads a few paragraphs about do you believe in objective truth if you answer yes you go to a, a another page in the book if you another answer question. no right. it leads you to another so can you tease that out for us yeah so each of these questions in the book i i've formulated them so that you either agree or disagree so it's either yes or no and i i try to when i pose each question i, I don't just state the question I explain it, uh, and we just had a good example there. If I just ask the question, do you believe in an objective truth? That might not be enough in itself to explain what's being asked. So I, I take a page to explain what is, what do I mean by objective truth? What, what exactly is the question getting at? And then it simply asks, if you, if you agree, uh, if, you, if your answer is yes, go to page such and such. If your answer is no, go to page such and such. And in the case of objective truth, um, you basically hit a dead end in the book right away. Yeah, I saw that. I, yeah, right. So some some of these questions, I mean, they are they you're you're going off the rails right away if you answer <laughs> if you answer them a certain way because you end up in a in a in a position that is uh, radically self defeating or absurd or just flies in the face of common sense. Right. And um, although you and I know that there are people who deny that there is objective truth, or at least when they're asked that question, they seem to be relativists. Um, uh, actually, relativism itself is is self-defeating. Right. And so you go to the I go you go to the page in the book, and it would be relativism. Your world is relativism. Your worldview is relativism. But um, here's here's why you want to might want to rethink that and uh, and reconsider this worldview because. Uh, it's self-defeating, and also nobody lives like they're a relativist. Right. Even if they say they are, no one consistently lives as a, as a relativist. So the, the nice thing about the book, and this was true of the original Choose Your Own Adventure books, that if you if you took a wrong turn, you know you made a bad choice in the book, and you you ended up getting uh, eaten by the dragon. Well, that's fine. Because you just backtrack. You just go back to the previous uh, page where you made that choice, and you change you change your choice, and you follow right. another path. And so I, I hope people will do this with, with the worldview book. So if they say there's no such thing as objective truth and then they hit relativism, then I explain to them why that's self-defeating. Hopefully they will go, okay, well, 
maybe that wasn't the best answer. So what if I say that there is objective truth? I'll follow to the other page, and then you get the next question. So some of these, some of these paths, well, actually, all of them ultimately end in a worldview of some kind, but some of them are, are dead ends right off the bat. Others take a while to get there, but all of them, I, when they get to the end, there's a, a, a particular worldview, and I, I get people to think a, a little bit more critically about whether that worldview really is the one that, that they want to embrace. Yeah. Have you had any experiences with people that have taken your book and really traced uh, maybe an unbeliever that's taken your book. When I asked the target audience being for church, what I meant was like, um, like uh, it's in language that is understandable for most people, right? It's not a highly technical academic right. kind of book, right? right. Um, so uh, just so everyone knows, like it's, it's very accessible. Um, but ha do you have much experience? I'd love to hear any like testimonies of people that have, tried to interact with this and what have they told you or, um, you know, things that people have said about, man, I didn't understand this about my worldview and whatever. I've got a, a lot of encouraging feedback about the book. It's been out some six years now. Um, but I, I still regularly get emails, correspondence from people saying, um, I picked up a copy of your, your book and I, I gave it to a friend or family member who's an unbeliever and it led to some great conversations. Yeah. Um, it's been fairly widely used in, in youth groups and in some schools as well. Uh, some, some teachers have used it as a teaching tool for getting their students to think about worldviews. Sometimes they're, they're Christian schools, sometimes they're, they're not because it's, I mean, it, 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 it can be used by anyone just to think more generally about, about worldviews. But yeah, I, I've had some uh, very encouraging testimonies. I, I couldn't name a specific one right now, but I, I had many people reporting that they, they gave it to someone and it led to some really good gospel conversations. And that's, that's the goal. I, I do not expect anyone to read this book and you know, pray the sinner's prayer <laughs> and start going to church. Uh, maybe that has happened. Maybe it will will happen. But although although there is gospel in this book, if you if you read it through and you follow the path to the Christian worldview, you will get a good understanding of what exactly the Christian worldview is and what the, what the gospel yeah. is. Um, so it's there. But I, I would never expect the book in itself to be sufficient to, to get someone to accept the gospel. And, but yeah. rather, it's going to, what I hope, I hope it will do, is to open the door to more discussion, to challenge people's uh, complacency about the way they see the world and prod them to think more deeply about the consistency of their own presuppositions and, and assumptions yeah. about themselves and about reality. So it's just a conversation starter. That's really all I hope to accomplish. Yeah, I love it. It's a useful conversation starter. And in my experience, um, there's a lot of benefit to, be, to read apologetics for a believer just for the sake of training and for reinforcing the fact that there are really good reasons to believe the things that I believe. And sometimes, yeah. you know, we, we fluctuate in our faith and 
you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. One of the ways to help my unbelief is to read a book like this and remember, okay, it, this isn't just some willy-nilly decision I made. Um, there's actually really good, logical, um, comprehensible reasons why I have the faith that I have. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people assume that apologetics is just for unbelievers, for, for giving it to, to unbelievers. And I would suggest not only that apologetics is important for believers themselves to, to help them understand why their faith is reasonable, to strengthen their faith, but perhaps it's most important for believers because unless, unless Christians themselves have, have confidence in the intellectual integrity of their faith, they're, they're not even going to start the sort of conversations that they need to be having with unbelievers. Right. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. And I'm not totally sure how to summarize this really well, but we were talking about this issue in our staff meeting yesterday about, you know, even in our lifetime, seeing some kind of seismic shifts in how people think about um, truth, um, what is an objective fact and what's not. And, you know, when I was in seminary, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we were talking about postmodernism quite a bit and, um, you know, relativism that's kind of downstream from that. But it seems like a book like Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, which was like, I'm going to do the research and here's the facts and you should consider the facts and then make a decision. That was a comprehensible approach even maybe 15 years ago or so. And for some, maybe it still is. But it seems like we're in a new day and age where feelings are more important than facts. Um, and, you know, Carl Truman has written a lot about this in his most recent book. Um, but the statement that, um, you know, we just, a, a great case study of this is the transgender experience in our culture today where science you know may say chromosomes may say uh that this is what it means to be a male and i understand there's people would say a difference between gender and sexuality and gender identity and all of that but we have agreed uh the world has agreed that words have meaning and words correspond to certain definitions of something, right? And, and now we're in, a, in an environment where words might not have the same meaning. And so I, I, the, the fact is, um, is diminished and the feelings are elevated. Does that create, now you could comment on any of that, Dr. Anderson, but um, I would imagine that that kind of environment, it seems like is increasing in our culture, would create a challenge to what we've understood as apologetics. Said more simply, is the book, The Case for Christ, and that approach, is, are those days gone? And do we need to adapt to our culture with a different approach where Facts don't really matter. It's how, how you feel is what matters. Like, 
I'm not going to listen to you because obviously Christians hate gay people. So like, I don't really care what you say the facts are. I mean, that kind of a thing. Yeah. 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 I think uh, certainly it's true that a lot of people's views of the world and, and views of Christianity in particular are driven by feelings that have been inculcated by the culture and people tend to put more stock in how they feel about things than what we would regard as as objective facts now i i think there's a danger in overstating the extent to which that has happened and also there's a danger in generalizing you know people talk about the culture right people today right as if there's just one culture or if there's just this 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 um typical unbeliever when the fact is that, that the world is extremely diverse and our culture is extremely diverse Amen. and we've got all kinds of people we've got people who who are still consider themselves very rationalistic and very um objective in their approach and they care about facts i mean take someone just pick someone fairly well known someone like richard dawkins so right. richard dawkins is clearly not a christian not a sympath not sympathetic to the christian worldview but he would be just as critical of the postmodernist mindset that says truth is relative and go with your feelings and uh, you've got your own personal facts, everybody's got their own facts. So um, you know, he's an example of someone who, who, who is critical of this postmodernist or subjectivist approach, but is also critical of Christianity. And so you've, you've got different kinds of mindsets out there. And there are some people who still are concerned about facts, about historical facts. Um, and I think actually more people are concerned about historical facts than we might reckon with. Uh, for example, there's a lot of uh, discussion right now about America's history and uh, issues related to race in America, and the, the, the origins of um, uh, America and the role that slavery played and so forth. Right. Now, that is a historical debate, and the facts matter, and people know that the facts matter. Right. Certainly, people's opinions are very influenced by sort of identity politics and you know, where you're coming from, left, right, and so forth. So, that, of course, there are, there are prejudices and, and subjective factors that are built into that. But... People still want to talk about facts. What are the actual facts? Let, let's do the historical investigation. And so I think at a, at a deep level, people do care about facts when they can see that the, that the truth and what really matters depends on the facts. And we can, we can capitalize on that by saying, well, when it comes to Christianity, uh, what really matters is the facts, the historical facts about what happened in the first century, who Jesus was, what he did, what Amen. happened after he was crucified and so forth. So I don't think it's so simple to say that people go with feelings rather than facts. It's that people tend to go with one or other depending on exactly what they want to accomplish or, or what, what is important to them. In other words, they care about the facts when it turns out that the facts matter to them. And when, when the facts are inconvenient, that's when they will tend to fall back on, on feelings. So yeah. a book like, to go back to your, the way you posed the question, you know, a book like um, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, 
I think maybe it, it's it's harder to get people interested in a book or to take a book like that seriously. But I don't think, I think it's simplistic to say we're beyond the point where a, a book, a, an apologetic like that is useful because there are there are many people who are interested in, in historical facts and scientific facts and um, and that, that book addresses them. It scratches them where they itch. Right. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Have you seen, though, um, would you say you've observed shifts? And that's really what more I was getting at. It seems like there's happening to be a shift um, yeah. in, in the culture that's more uh, tr- feelings are king. Um, yeah. Have you observed that in your lifetime, though, like where it used to be kind of like this and it feels like it's veering this way? So, so as I think about how do I engage the world for Christ— I need to keep a few things in mind. Is any any anything like that ring a bell for you? I yeah, for sure. There's there's no question that in in the last twenty years or so, we've seen a real sea change in people's understanding of morality and human nature and human sexuality. Mm-hmm. Now, someone like Carl Truman, you mentioned his book, does a great job of explaining why actually this didn't come out of the blue. That's right. But this has been brewing for hundreds of years. That's right. It's just that it's only percolated to the surface of the culture and become mainstreamed right. uh, in our in our lifetimes. But there is there's definitely a connection between the the sexual revolution, which really burst into public consciousness in the 60s and has has grown and, and extended itself ever since, and this deeper idea that we get to define ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's really what's at stake. Whether human beings get to define for ourselves who we are, why we are here, what are the parameters of human life, as opposed to those being givens that we've inherited from, well, ultimately from, from God, by God's design of the universe. So we certainly have seen some shifts and the most obvious manifestations of that would be the the massive change in public opinion almost a, a you know 180 degree reversal of attitudes towards same-sex relationships and now the transgender revolution which has has i mean it's been like a tsunami that just burst all over us really around about 2015 2016 it really is that that recent it seems yeah. like it's been around for a while but but the the force um, with which the transgender revolution has over, overcome our culture um, has only been apparent for the last four or five years. So we're, we're very aware of that because that's the most visible and extreme form of it. And it does seem extreme because it seems to involve a, de- a denial of reality, a basic denial of reality, a denial of, of male and female, of yeah. men and women. and. And it, and it upends all our categories and seems to make our language, it, it disconnects our language from reality. And that makes it harder to communicate, to have these common discussions. Right. Yeah, it seems like another kind of theme that I see percolating around. And in Dr. Truman's book, this is a, a theme as well. That's not just something new, obviously, and you've read more about this philosophy than I have, but the whole idea that truth, any talk of objective truth is simply a means to maintain power 
Right. So the church yeah. used that for hundreds of years just to maintain power. You know, it, the, the, the churches exist to keep people compliant. You know, that's, yeah. that's a narrative that you'll hear. Um, but it seems like that is, that is coming up more. And how, how should we think about that? Right. I think there's a number of things we can say about that. And, and you're right, this has become quite a, a, a prominent and problematic view that any claim to objective truth or, or worse than that, absolute truth, that's the, that's the real kicker, to talk about absolute truth. Um, that is inherently oppressive. It's just a way of gaining power. And this traces back to postmodernist philosophers like Michel Foucault, who, who make these claims that, that knowledge is actually a power play and so forth. Um, but now it's now it's working its way to the college campuses and you, you've got very um, uh, politically motivated uh, student groups who are making these claims uh, and, and, and sort of demanding that they be acknowledged and that anyone who is making objective claims or certain kinds of traditional uh, value judgments need to be uh, sidelined and perhaps even silenced. So we need to figure out how we're going to answer this question that objective truth claims are inherently oppressive because that's exactly what we want to do. We want to make objective truth claims about God, about Christ, about the Bible. And one of the things I'm going to point out is that that claim in itself is, is self-defeating. I was just going to say that. someone's going to say, yeah, and it's, it's not difficult to see it, although it's Apparently, it's difficult for many people to, to accept the point. But if someone says uh, objective truth claims are inherently oppressive, I'm going to ask, is that itself an objective truth claim? If it is, then are you oppressing me? Yeah, why right are you now? oppressing me then? Yeah, stop oppressing me. Uh, shame on you. Yeah. Uh, but if it's not an objective truth claim, then I don't know what it is. I don't know why, why I should take it seriously. Maybe it's just true for you and not true for me. And we can just all go on our merry way. So... So there is that, the claim, uh, the claim itself, I think, is radically self-defeating. Right. But also, I'm going to point out that it's never applied consistently anyway, because even those who claim that objective truth is, is oppressive, or objective truth claims or knowledge claims are oppressive, still want to make their own class or category of objective truth claims, um, whether that be about um, sexual permissive behavior, or about political uh, positions or, or whatever. Sooner or later, people are gonna be making their own objective truth claims. So it's not really that they're against objective truth claims, they're just against a certain kind of objective truth claim or, or the content of certain objective truth claims. And the fact that, that people are concerned about things like fake news, mm -hmm. conspiracy theories, yep. um, Lies. I mean, you know, people get all bent out of shape because this politician or that politician lied. Right. Well, that makes no sense unless there is objective truth. You can't lie about something that isn't objectively true. Maybe it was maybe that was true for him, but not true for you, in which case it's not a lie from his perspective. Right. So, you know, our, our, our discourse still depends on a core of objective truth. And I think with a, a bit of prodding, a bit of discussion, and we want to do this in a sort of a gentle, gentle rather than uh, aggressive or confrontational way, but we can For get sure. people to see that actually they themselves are, 
are committed to these ideas. And once, once we have that established, then we can have a serious discussion about what that objective truth is. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, let me bring up this issue. I have felt the challenge of what feels to me like, especially talking about shifts in our lifetime. Um, when I was a kid in the 80s, um, it was a safe bet that all of my friends at school had some structures in their head for what church and Christianity actually meant. Um, that if you said Jesus, they would probably be able to say, yeah, he, he was a guy that, um, you know, was crucified and the claim is that he rose again from the dead. That's what Easter is. I mean, I might not even go to church, but I might know what Easter is. But it feels to me in my experience, at least as an adult, that we are becoming more and more what people call post-Christian. Yeah. And I was just sharing the gospel with a, a friend of mine, he's 19, a few days ago. And it dawned on me like this, this dude doesn't know anything. I mean, yeah. he couldn't tell me what Easter is or what Christmas is. I mean, things that are like really at the heart of our culture in a lot of ways, or at least in many parts of the world, European culture, at least um, South American culture, maybe, you know, Christmas and Easter still is a, is a deal, something, but like he, no categories for anything. Yeah. And, and it dawned on me like, okay, wow. Like I can't assume anything here about sin and forgiveness, um, need for atonement, um, you know, right, wrong, who's to say, you know, all of these things. And, and so as we're talking as a church, we want to make disciples. That's in the mission statement of our church. We want to make disciples and plant churches. And I just love to hear your thoughts on real practically, um, do we need to keep that in mind? Does it matter? Uh, how, how can you help us when it seems like increasingly post-Christian in our culture? Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, and I've experienced it myself. And, of course, it does matter, because if we are sharing the gospel with someone, and it seems like they don't even have the basic categories to understand it, that's, <laughs> that makes our, it seems to make our job even, even harder. I want to suggest maybe at the outset that, well, two, two related thoughts. One is... This may not, this may in some respects be an advantage because if you are starting with a, a blank slate with someone who doesn't think they're a Christian, doesn't claim to be a Christian, and doesn't know anything about Christianity, you're, th- you're actually then not having to clear away the debris of a false conception of Christianity, um, which actually can be just as much an obstacle. I, I made this observation when I when I moved to the United States some 12 years ago, that, and I moved to the South, the Southern United States, that what what was new for me was that pretty much everyone claimed to be a Christian. Right, and that's not (laughs) the case in Scotland. No, it's not. No, I mean, Scotland is undoubtedly a post-Christian country. There's no question about that. Right. And what that means is, if, if someone in Scotland claims to be a Christian, they probably are. Right. They, they, they really take it seriously. They really believe it because right. culturally it doesn't pay right. to, to claim to be a Christian when you're not. So either they're going to be an evangelical Christian or they're going to be maybe a Roman Catholic who you know, thinks that that's, that's 
their understanding of Christianity. Um, and so often here, it's, it's hard to evangelize, or at least in some parts of the United States, it's hard to evangelize because you have to deal with this superficial cultural Christianity, which is actually not biblical Christianity at all. It's, a, it's more like what is um, what Christian Smith calls moralistic therapeutic deism, but a sort of degenerate form of, of Christian uh, Christian ideas. And you've got to clear away that before you can actually start talking about the gospel. Whereas if you're talking about someone who, who really doesn't know the even the, the basics of Christianity, there's a sense in which you're starting fresh, right? And you can you can set the agenda. And the second thought that I have that's related to this is that this is not a new experience for the church in, in missions. In Christian because history. This is ex exactly. Yeah. Because this is exactly what the, the first Christians, the first several generations of Christians experienced. Christianity right. really was new. And, of course, there was, there, there was the Jewish audience. The apostles brought the gospel to Jews, and they had categories of, you know, Old Testament, yep. Hebrew religion, that, that you could speak about the Messiah and so forth. But you also had these these pagan Greeks who didn't have a clue. I mean, they're, they're polytheists, they're, they're naturalistic, they, they have all kinds of um, uh, philosophical assumptions that are quite at odds with the Christian worldview. And uh, you can see this perhaps most directly in Acts 17, where Paul is um, uh, preaching in, at Athens to these these Greek philosophically minded Greek folk, and uh, and they just don't, they don't get it at all. Right. Um, in fact, they when he talks about Jesus and the resurrection, they think he's talking about two gods. Right. You know, because they they probably think that that his Greek word for resurrection Anastasia is actually in the name of a god. And, uh, and so what Paul has to do there, and it's absolutely fascinating to study this. And I'm sure you're familiar with this, but maybe your your, your listeners here not so familiar but Paul in Athens in his speech at Athens is actually before he even really gets to the gospel he's he's laying out the basics of a Christian worldview in opposition to the prevailing Greek worldview he's actually engaging in worldview apologetics yeah. and um, one person who's brought this out um, better than anyone well as well as anyone I think is um, D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson has a, an essay uh, somewhere on, on Paul's approach in Athens, and he, he makes exactly this point that the, the, the pagans to which Paul is preaching just don't even have the basic categories of God, man, sin, creation, in order to make sense of the gospel. And he says that Paul has to put in, into place a kind of worldview framework within which the gospel message itself makes sense. And the, the payoff so Carson argues, is that we're in a situation now where we basically have to do the same thing. And so, and so Paul's model is actually a great model for us because we're now in a situation where you can't just say, look, Jesus died for your sins to reconcile you to God, and that will make sense to people. Right. Dying for sins, reconciling to God, why, why would I need this? Right. Uh, so, um, and so we need to do the same sort of work in, in communicating not just the gospel itself, but the broader worldview in terms of which the gospel makes sense, where there's a certain understanding of God, an understanding of the origins of the cosmos, the origins of human beings, why we are here, what's happened to our relationship with God, what God has done in order to, to remedy that problem, um, and so forth. So I think that's, that's how we approach a, a lot of this today. Uh, rather than seeing it as a 
as a new problem. We just see it as actually a new manifestation of an old problem, but also it's an opportunity. It presents uh, fresh opportunities that, uh, that previous generations haven't had. Yeah. I feel like in my experience, and I'd love to hear your thought about this too, is, you know, we see Jesus sharing the gospel about himself in very diverse ways throughout the Bible. And we also see him asking questions and listening really well. And when we take that as a model, I've found that to be really fruitful. Like, for example, when I was talking to a friend of mine, this same friend, 19-year-old kid, and he's struggling with some issues and, uh, and just was listening and asking questions. And it dawned on me that he's really disappointed in some things happening in his life. And so the nature of his life, if he doesn't have a hope beyond this life, is just this roller coaster of things. Sometimes things go good. Sometimes things go bad. What happens if things just trend bad a lot? And then just asking the question, is it possible to have um, a worldview or an understanding of my existence that isn't defined by the ups and downs of life, something more consistent, something more stable. Mm-hmm. And then I just got to say, but that's, that's why I'm a Christian, because um, my, my happiness isn't ultimately contingent upon things that can change. And, but that only happened because I listened to him, you know what I mean? And, and I didn't treat him as like a evangelistic formula just to plug and play. And um, is that something that, that, that kind of approach, do you think that's a wise approach that's, that's important for us as we make disciples? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's, there is a real danger in, in developing a sort of formulate one size fits all approach to evangelism, to apologetics. You've got your, you know, your pat speech and you're going to give it to whoever will listen to it regardless of anything about their background or their particular concerns. And you are right as well that, that we see this in the New Testament, both with, with Jesus and the apostles, that you see the, the gospel communicated, the same gospel communicated in different ways in different contexts. In other words, the way, the entry point for talking about Christ and his work is, is different um, depending on the person and the context in which uh, this, this preaching is taking place. A great example of this, I think, is in John's gospel between John, John chapter three and John chapter four. Exactly. So John chapter three, exactly. you've got Jesus meeting with Nicodemus. Who's this guy? He's a Jewish teacher. He's self-righteous, know-it-all. Uh, he's curious, but he doesn't think he's got anything to really learn. And, and Jesus really bursts his bubble by, by exposing his, his ignorance that he doesn't even understand the scriptures that he claims to, to follow. That is very different from his approach with the Samaritan woman, who, who, who quite the opposite. She doesn't think she's self-righteous. She knows she's not righteous. Right. She knows she's, um, she's, she's, she's living a shameful life, and she's, she's on the margins. And Jesus approaches her in a very different way, and yet the goal is the same, to reveal himself to her as, as the very savior that she needs. Nicodemus needs the same savior, but the, the, the point of contact, the point of, um, of, of, we might even say, leverage for the gospel is different in each case. And we need to, we need to learn from these New Testament models and, and develop our own flexibility in sharing the gospel. I think one person who's, who's done some great work in this and has very helpful resources is Tim Keller. 
Yeah. Uh, Tim, Tim Keller's got some great material on um, how to connect, make this connection between the gospel and the sort of concerns that people have in, in our culture today that can serve as a launching pad for talking about the gospel and introducing people to the gospel. And he has this, um, this approach that uh, I, I think he calls it different things in different places, but uh, sometimes he calls it the, the yes, no, yes approach, where people, an unbeliever has, has some concern or some interest that in itself is is legitimate. Might might be a concern about justice. Might right. be a concern about um, as you as you said with this friend you were talking to about the the instability in the world, the unpredictability, chaotic nature of life. It might be a concern about meaning. Uh, you know, finding your purpose in life. And we want to start by saying yes, that's that's a legitimate human concern. That's it's important that you care about that and that you're thinking about that. But then the no is. The culture that you're in and the way that you see the world now doesn't provide an answer to that. It, it gives answers, but they're not good answers. It doesn't give a good account of why that thing matters and how it's to be resolved. So that's the no stage, showing how non-Christian cultures, non-Christian approaches fail to satisfy with regard to that issue. And then thirdly, you have the yes, Christianity does not only acknowledge it, but provides a satisfying answer or resolution to it, whether it's the question of justice, the question of guilt and forgiveness and personal redemption, the question of fulfillment in life, the question of uh, stability in the world. Uh, so this yes, no, yes approach, where yes, you affirm the presenting issue, no, you show how non-Christian answers fall short, and then yes, here's how... The Bible addresses that in an ultimately much more satisfying, coherent way. That's I think that can be a very yeah. It's great book. starting with common ground. Like right. we both care about this, but let's tease this out some more, yeah. um, and where our hope can be found and making sense of it. Let me ask you this: switching gears a little bit, um, do you still do you think it's helpful to identify yourself as an evangelical? I, I, I will accept that label. If someone asks me, am I an evangelical? I will say yes, but then immediately I want to follow up and say, and here's what I mean by it. Exactly. Because, or I would, I would say like, what do you mean by that? And then I'll tell yeah, that, you, then I'll tell you right. whether I am yeah, or not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you, you tell me what you think an evangelical is. Right. And I'll, I'll yeah. Um, but that's not, that's not my first descriptor. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm more likely to uh, simply describe myself as a Bible-believing Christian because yeah. that's ultimately one of what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about some what's now largely become a kind of political category or, or social demographic. Right. Um, you know, you get all these polls, and one category is now evangelicals or, or white evangelicals. Right. You know, um, and I, I'm not interested in being reduced to a pollsters category. Um, rather, I want to first identify myself as a Christian, by which I simply mean a follower of Christ, and then more specifically, a Christian who recognizes that Christ is known through Scripture right. and that God has revealed himself in the Bible. And therefore, I believe what the Bible says about God and Christ and the way of salvation. Um, and then if we want to get more specific, I could 
say, yeah, you know, the, historically this is what evangelical has meant, and 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 I'm I would agree with that. Um, I might want to talk about why I'm a reformed Christian in certain sure. contexts as well. I, I would prefer to call myself a reformed Christian than I would a evangelical Christian, but it's going to largely depend on who I'm speaking to and what their what their preconceptions are going to to be. But it's important to get past the labels to what are the actual views that we hold. Yeah, that's helpful. Another another thing that seems to be a common kind of theme in in making disciples or, or sharing our faith. You know, when we moved to Madison, Madison has a reputation, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, of, of being kind of like a small version of Austin, Texas, a small version of Seattle or Portland. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Portlandia. Um, no. Yeah. It, 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 basically, it's just all these stereotypes of people that live in Portland. Um, and it's really funny. Um, it's, it's a little crass at times. But that's basically Madison, is all the stereotypes of the show Portlandia, it's basically all pretty much true. I mean, of course, these are generalizations. Is it like hipster cultures yeah 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 exactly um just very very left wing um in terms of politics um very you know these are all generalizations but you know it'd be very um just known for you know left anything kind of left-leaning that's what that's what madison is um when we moved here 10 you know 10 years ago we were expecting like some outright persecution you know, and that just hasn't happened. And I don't know why that hasn't happened. More blatant kind of in your face persecution. Um, and I'm sure we could go find it if we wanted to. But for the most part, in my experience, it hasn't been persecution like in your face, you know, people picketing outside our church. Um, but it's just been more apathy. And like, why would I even care about worldview? Why would I even care about Christianity? You know, um, can you, can you convince me even to like, why would I even want to enter into that conversation? It's just kind of like, oh, you're Christian. Cool. All right. Well, let's talk about the next thing. You know, um, what would you say to those struggling with, with in that kind of a context? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've often said to, to my students that the the, the two great challenges that we face in our day when it comes to evangelism, sharing the gospel, are incomprehension and indifference. Mm-hmm. And they're often related. But incomprehension is what we talked about earlier, where people don't even have a context, a set of categories for understanding the gospel. But then the indifference is the shrug of the shoulders and, you know, you, you, you do you. Right. Uh, and if Christianity works for you, that's fine. And, now, underlying that, I think, is both a, a rather superficial view of truth, um, that, that whatever, whatever works for a particular person is, is true for them. But also, it's a failure to appreciate just how radical Christianity is and uh, that it is a, an all-encompassing worldview, that it, that it, it affects everything. And as, you know, as, as C.S. Lewis said and i'll paraphrase here that if 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 christianity is true then nothing could be more important than that and if it's false nothing could be less important but um the one thing that christianity cannot be cannot be is unimportant the sort of claims it makes about our place in the world 
and what is important and um, what we're to do with our lives and how we're to pursue justice in this world and so forth. Uh, whether Christianity is true or not makes, makes a huge difference. So partly I think what we need to do is help people to understand just how radical Christianity is and that, and that the, the truth of the matter is what ultimately matters. We've talked a bit about how people have a relativistic view of truth. Right. Uh, but I think if we, can, if we can help people to see that they really do care about objective truth, then they should care about the objective truth about God, about whether there is a God, about whether he, whether we are meant to have a relationship with him, about how, uh, where we came from and why we're here and so forth. And, and the objective truth about Christ as a historical individual, what, what did he actually teach and what was it true? Um, so talking about helping people to understand that uh, they themselves care about objective truth and therefore they ought to care about whether Christianity is objectively true is, is part of what we're going to do. But I think another thing we want to do is rather than starting with, here's what I think is important as a Christian, let me tell you about it. But, okay, what do you think is important? What, what do you really care about? What do you think is uh, some of the most pressing issues in the world today that need to be addressed? And then we can start that conversation about why then does it matter? So whether it's the pursuit of racial justice or uh, eliminating um, fake news or whatever concerns people have, I'm going to say, okay, you care about that, why? What, what, what is your view of life, the universe and everything that makes that so important and makes sense of it as a real concern? So again, it's that yes, but no, but yes dynamic of finding where, what is it that people are really invested in? What is it, what is it that they're willing to state their, maybe, the, maybe their lives, but if not their lives, at least maybe their career, their bank balance, uh, what are they willing to state things on? And then talk about why, why is that so important to them? Well, how do they make sense of the fact that, that that really matters in the grand scheme of things? Yeah. Of course, there are some people who will shrug their shoulders and say, I don't think any of it matters. Right. Um, I'm just living my uh, life. Whatever. Right. And, you know, I'm just here to get as much pleasure, entertainment out of life as I, as I can. Um, I think that sooner or later, people find that unsatisfying. Yeah. Um, and usually suffering might be the thing that trips them or awakens them. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Once, when things are... You know, the sun is shining and they're, they've got their health and they've got their income. Um, and we know this from scripture, of course, that uh, it's those who are, who are comfortable and have worldly wealth who are hard to reach. Right. Where it's those where the Lord has brought suffering, trials into their lives, that it softens them up to think about the, the, the deeper issues of life. And what I love about what you just described there, Dr. Anderson, is just that illustrates less just like preaching at people. Um, maybe they don't want to even hear you preach, but it demonstrates listening. And yeah. I, I want to, I want to hear you. And cause I do, yeah. I do care about you and I want to know what makes you tick. And then we can have a conversation about that. And most people are really open to that yeah. and, and feel loved when you listen to them yeah. and, and it's beautiful. Yeah. And, and, and part of all of this is about building bridges of trust, relationships of trust 
if if I'm not willing to listen to what someone has to say, why would they trust me? Why would they want to listen to what I have to say? Exactly. It's just a basic application of the golden rule. If if, exactly. if I want someone to to listen to me and consider what I have to say, I want to first extend that courtesy to them and say, you know, tell me, tell me about your life, tell me about your experiences, tell me about what's important to you, um, and then then we, we've got a bridge, uh, a bridge of uh, a relationship, of trust, of respect uh, that hopefully we can, we can build upon. Yeah, amen. Well, Dr. Anderson, this has been a great conversation. Um, you've given us an hour and 13 minutes of your time on my clock, and I really, really appreciate that. Uh, before we go, is there anything, um, if people want to find you or more books that you've written, is there anything you're currently working on or besides your, your book, um, What's Your Worldview, that we talked about today? Um, any other, you know, anything else we can? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So, um, there is another book that I think is worth mentioning because it might be useful to your listeners. Uh, and that's a, a book I, I, I wrote a couple of years after this worldview book, which in a, in some respects complements it. It's called, um, why should I believe Christianity? Why mm. should I believe Christianity? And it's, it's a, uh, again, uh, hopefully a very accessible, very readable introduction to the Christian worldview and why it, why it makes sense. Um, again, it's written for both believers and unbelievers. It avoids jargon, fancy philosophical language. It tries to make things as understandable as possible. But what it does is it, it really lays out what the Christian worldview actually is, why, why it matters, and why we should believe it. What are some actual reasons for believing it? So maybe that would be useful. Yeah. And I would also mention that's actually part of a larger series that I am co-editing. It's published by Christian Focus Publications, a Scottish publishing, Christian publishing house. And uh, the series is called The Big Ten. The Big and Ten? The, the, the Big Ten. Yeah, nothing okay. to do with sports. Okay. I've been told apparently this matters in the world of sport. It does. I don't, yeah. <laughs> it matters <laughs> up then, here. Right here. Yeah, yeah, right. Um but there's no actual connection. It's just pure coincidence. The okay. Big Ten the Big Ten here are, are Big Ten questions, questions that people today ask about the Christian faith that really represent uh, objections of a sort. So uh, we have five um, of these books out in the series already. Uh, there's the one I just mentioned that I wrote. There's one on um, uh, what difference does Christianity make yeah. um you know does, does it really make a difference in the world is it does is it good for the world yeah. um uh and william edgar wrote that one there's one um on the problem of evil why is there so much evil and suffering in the world uh, by greg welty there's one on hell how could a loving god send people to hell um by ben skaug and um uh and one on why should i trust the bible uh what yeah why, why should i yeah, why should i trust the bible um, by um, Timothy Paul Jones. So those are those are the five that are out now, and then there are five more that are currently in the works, and one on um, science hasn't sci science disproven the Bible, and yeah. one on uh, why is why is why does God behave so badly in the Old Testament? Uh, very common question that people are asking today, and uh, why why is Christianity the only way? And on. So there are um, there's some other ones in the works, but. Hopefully they're a good resource because they are addressing the questions that come up all the time in conversations and they are biblically faithful, but also very accessible. Um, Is one of them dealing with sexuality? 
Um, one of them yeah, does, none of them deals with uh, sexuality alone, um, but uh, some of them sort of touch on that indirectly. Yeah. Um, you know, why, a, um, uh, for example, there's one that's coming that, uh, what, what if, if Christianity is true, why, if Christianity is good, why are Christians so bad? Gotcha. Um, you know, why, why do Christians pay by jokes? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which we know they do. Yeah, it's a good uh, question. I do. Yeah. Uh, right. Um, but one of the issues, of course, that comes up is the why, why Christians are bigoted. Why do they hate right. gay people, for example? Right. Um, so right. that's, you know, that's, that's addressed uh, in that book. That's helpful. So the, the title of the, the follow-up book is what again? The follow-up to what's your worldview? My one. Yeah. Um, why should I believe Christianity? Okay. Why should I believe so they, they can just go to Amazon and find that. Yeah, Amazon, uh, all, all good for themselves. Yes. Why should I believe Christianity? Great. Well, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much. And um, man, we'd love to have you back sometime. And we really appreciate you, appreciate your insight and, and, and wisdom into all these things. Thanks, Zach. It's been a lot of fun.